How many of you have had a chance at some point in the last couple of years to watch even one episode of The Blacklist? Raise your hands if you have. If that's not one of your shows or you don't know anything about it, let me just explain that it's a crime scene drama in a sense. It's one of those uh, spellbinding tales that takes you inside of some kind of insidious human behavior. And in the course of the, um, of the storyline of this particular show, you meet a whole variety of some of the most stunningly cunning and corrupt human beings possible. I mean, you're running into grandmother abusers and, uh, and just horrible people, people that you are really glad to see finally be brought to justice in the end. If you're familiar at all with the story of Easter and with the New Testament accounts of these matters, you know that we also find within the pages of this particular show a blacklist of sorts. We run into a variety of different kinds of people whose uh, inward orientation, whose passions and uh, priorities drive them on a collision course with Jesus with Jesus' vision of life, his, his vision of what the kingdom of God is meant to be. And, and each of them plays some role in what you'd have to call the most heinous murder of all time, the crucifixion of probably the most loving, pure, sacrificial human being, certainly, uh, that has ever walked this earth. During this Lenten season, we're gonna actually take a look together at some of those figures. We're going to embark on a series of studies that, like any good crime scene drama, helps us to understand why these people did the particular things they did. But maybe more importantly still, we're going to spend some time trying to figure out how you and I might actually be like them. Because if we cannot personalize the story of of Lent, the events of Easter and Good Friday, then chances are it will never have the power that God intends for it to have to transform our lives for good. We're going to pick up the story today in the, um, in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and I want to welcome you if you have a Bible with you today or access to one on your phone to turn with me to the 21st chapter of Matthew's Gospel as I take us from verse 33 and following through a particular encounter and story that happens there. I wanna set the scene for it if I can, first of all. It is Monday of Holy Week. It is the very start, it's just after Palm Sunday, it's the start of the march that Jesus will make all the way to the cross. And in this particular day, Jesus is sitting in the temple court. The court of the temple uh, was a big outside plaza outside of the great temple at Jerusalem. It's the place where a lot of the regular people hung out, met together. Uh, even those who were a little shy about going into the temple would encounter each other out there. And Jesus uh, preferred this location as a place to teach. And on this particular occasion, he's teaching. He's in conversation. And in the crowd, alongside of all the regular folks, are also a group of people called the chief priests and the Pharisees. How many of you have ever heard of the chief priests and the Pharisees? Yeah, I'm not surprised. They figure really prominently in the New Testament and especially in the events of, of the last days of Jesus. Now, the New Testament makes 
frequent reference to them, and so because of that, it's important to understand who they were and why they ran afoul of Jesus. What was it about uh, their, um, their way of being and Jesus' way of being that created this massive conflict that ended so badly, in a sense, um, uh, for people? Well, I know that preachers often caricature these figures. Uh, meaning to say that we sort of look at them through one lens, we see them as just wholeheartedly bad, we often portray them as somewhere between uh, Darth Vader and Lord Voldemort. You know, they're just, they're hateful people. The, they're the very kind of people we would never be like. They're easy to write off and to dismiss. But I think that to see them in that light is to sort of miss out on the subtlety and the complexity and the value of this particular part of history. Because in reality, the chief priests and the Pharisees were, in a sense, much more like the, um, the Medici family was to uh, Renaissance Italy. Or one could argue even like the Washington to Hollywood uh, celebrity elite are to American culture today. These people were individuals with unusual, uh, often intellectual capacity, financial capacity, and they were the people that in many ways colored the culture and the tone of society in their particular time. Uh, part of the reason why these people were so influential is because they were a coalition. They, they, they actually worked together to exert a pervasive kind of influence on the society. The chief priests, uh, they ran the temple. Uh, that, their job was to coordinate the work of the religious establishment of that day. And the Pharisees ran the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, which is to say that they ran the political establishment of that day. And the two of these groups helped each other. Uh, if it were not for the Pharisees, uh, the, uh, the chief priests would not have the uh, financial capital necessary to keep the treasury of the temple going. And if it were not for the Pharisees, the chief priests would not get the, the political muscle needed to enforce the religious regulations that the Pharisees were setting in place. And then conversely, if it were not for the, um, the chief priests, um, the, the Pharisees would not have the spiritual authority and backing for their, their regulations that they, they were looking for. So these two groups worked together to order life in Israeli society. They were joined by a third significant group of people we simply read about as the scribes, the scribes. And the scribes were sort of the bureaucrats. They were the clerks, the secretaries that took down both the religious laws and the political laws and propagated them amongst the people, circulated them, put them on social media in effect, made sure that people knew about them and, and were living according to them. And together, these three groups constituted what sometimes the Bible refers to as the teachers of the law. Okay, so you get, you get that basic picture. This, this is who these particular people were and their role in relationship. So, as I said at the start, these folks um, exerted a lot of influence in the society, and, and some of it very good and helpful, uh, but there was a significant problem with them, and as the old saying goes, it went all the way down. 
there was something about the way these people were typically oriented towards life, towards other people, and above all, towards God that put them on this collision course with Jesus. And, and, uh, and ultimately, I want to talk with you about what that was. Uh, and to think about how that actually might be a similar kind of condition that afflicts us in our time. And, uh, and to, to, to really get at the heart of this, you need to understand that Jesus loved them. Uh, as I said, while preachers may caricature them and demonize them, Jesus wanted to reach them. But he knew that if he came at them with a full frontal assault, uh, like we experience this in our marriage sometimes. We bring it up really in a bald-faced way or in a straight, direct way. Sometimes the other person just gets so defensive they won't take it in. So, so wanting to reach the hearts of these people and knowing that, that, that doing it in the conventional way might not get there, Jesus pulls out his most powerful tool, his most effective technique for helping to bring about transformation if it's going to happen at all in somebody. Jesus pulls out a story, an absolutely amazing, spellbinding, you will not forget it story that I want to talk with you about uh, during the time we have together today. Uh, so I'm going to take us now to Matthew 21, verse 33, and I'm just going to just paraphrase the very first verse of that text for you. Once upon a time, says Jesus, a certain landowner decided to let some tenants use a tract of his land in exchange for a share of the harvest. Now, quick sidebar here on this. Everybody in the audience at this particular time hearing this would say, oh, we know that. They're all nodding because this particular arrangement, which is essentially a sharecropping arrangement, is the common economic reality for most people. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, uh, certain other very wealthy merchants owned their own land in many cases, but for the average human being, you depended upon some other landowner who gave you a part of their land holdings and allowed you to develop some kind of produce on that land, and then you would give back most of what you made and you keep a little share for yourself. I guess sometimes corporate life works that way even today. Uh, so everybody is sort of nodding at this particular arrangement, and then Jesus, as he goes on to tell the story, begins to add the first of what will be many unexpected twists. Jesus explains that this particular landowner does not just give to these tenants ordinary land. You need to understand that if a if a landowner possibly could, he would give undeveloped land to the tenants. He didn't want to put in the work and the expense of, of preparing that particular land. He would let the tenants do the work. Not so with this particular landowner, Jesus goes on to say. Apparently, this landowner had specially prepared the land. First of all, we know that he had actually planted a lush vineyard on the land so that in effect, the tenants already have a cash crop waiting for them, ready to go. And then beyond that, 
the landowner had done something else amazing. He had built a wall all the way around the property. Normally a tenant would be, uh, have to stay up at night or post a watch from their family to keep an eye on the land, lest marauding thieves and, uh, and wild animals came in and, and marauded and took the crops and, and therefore the, there would be a smaller amount to be able to hold on to or give back to the landowner. But in this case, the wall is there. It provides perfect uh, security. More than that, this landowner had devoted apparently weeks of backbreaking labor to dig a wine press right there in this vineyard. So instead of having to cart it off and pay somebody else to, to actually turn the crop into a uh, product that could be sold, the, um, the tenants had a ready production facility right there available to them. And then as if all of this isn't enough of an unbelievable deal, the landowner had arranged for the building of a watchtower on the property. What that meant is that the tenants would not have to spend their time walking around in the hot sun, you know, checking out on how the crop was doing and watching out for fires and, 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 and uh, trespassers in the space. No, they could go up to the top of the watchtower. They could sit under a canopy. They could sip Chardonnay in the shade and just enjoy this incredible deal they had. Are you getting this picture? I'm embellishing a little bit. I confess that. This, these words are not all right there in the text. <laughs> but you gotta remember that when Jesus first told these stories, he probably added a whole lot of color to these stories. We get the basic details coming down to us that people held on to, but his stories were wonderful. People remembered the stories of Jesus. And, and, and so I, I think that, that this is something of the arrangement that is being described when these tenants move in uh, to this particular property. I don't know if you have ever had a deal like that in your life. I don't know if you can uh, look back at a, a season of your life where you just looked around you and you said, wow, from the top of the watchtower, am I blessed or what? I mean, this is amazing. I think back to one of my most recent experiences of this, very concrete experience. I am, uh, I've had a group of um, five other pastors that are sort of best friends of mine. We've known each other since our days at Theological Seminary. And uh, every single year we get together. We'll spend five days together someplace. And uh, you know we'll share stories and we'll pray for each other and we'll play some golf and smoke some cigars and just, we'll just have a great time together. Uh, the challenge always is finding a place to meet, uh, to, to find a, a spot that's big enough to house all six of us, and, um, and we try and move it around. So last year, we're kind of casting around for where it is we're going to meet, and uh, one of the guys, a pastor in New Jersey, says, hey, I got a fraternity brother who, who has a place in the mountains in Montana. Let me ask if he would let us stay in his place. So we said, sounds good, sounds good. And we said, is it, is it anywhere near a ski area because it would be so cool if we could maybe meet in the winter time this, this time around and maybe, maybe we'd do some skiing. And the guy says, I, I think it might be near a ski area. Let me, let me look into it. So he books the place. Uh, we all fly into Bozeman, Montana. Um, we're met at the airport. And this is, the, this is where the story begins to get interesting for us because we're met at the airport. Uh, we were told he was gonna send a vehicle for us, and we're met by this very nice van. It picks us up at the airport. And then it, it, it drives us up, begins to drive us up into the mountains, and 
And, and we stop at this huge gate, uh, uh, stone walls, and, and there's this overarching sign that says, the Yellowstone Club, the Yellowstone Club. And the gate doors swing open and we pull into this space and we begin to wind our way around past these absolutely palatial, I mean architectural digest kinds of houses that we will soon come to know belong to the likes of Justin Timberlake and Jessica Biel and Tom and Giselle Brady and Bill and Melinda Gates and Eric Schmidt of Google and the list goes on. And the, the van pulls up into a driveway in front of this castle of stone and timber and glass and steel and we walk into this house and you can see through almost every one of these vast panoramic windows the most breathtaking views of the Montana mountains you've you can even imagine, and each and every one of us has our own private suite in this place. Are you getting this? How amazing this is for a bunch of pastors? It gets better, it gets better, I promise you. The guy, our host, um, had stocked the refrigerator and freezer with everything a bunch of guys could want to eat. I mean, steaks and snacks of every kind. And, and, and more than that, he has filled up a wine cooler taller than me and left instructions that we are to just enjoy uh, what, what he's provided for us. I kid you not. And, and um, he's arranged for us to, to, to get some ski equipment at, at, a, at a nearby lodge and he's covered some of the cost of that for us. He has l loans us some of, uh, of his own ski equipment and clothing in case we wanna go out. Uh, and, and ski, and it's a very good thing he does that because right outside the door of the castle is the ski trail that leads down into the heart of America's only completely private ski resort. When I say private, I'm saying like maybe we saw 10 other people we had a vast multi-mountain slope ski area to ourselves. And, and there were these little chalets dotted around the, the mountainside and you could walk in and there was really, in most cases, no one there except us and the service folks and they'd give us hot chocolate and other beverages and food and amazing things and we would just sign the host's name. So, so imagine this. Imagine that we're, we're there in the house. It's, it's the end of a, of a glorious day and we're just sitting around and a knock comes on the door and one of us gets up and we go to the door and we open up the door and standing at the door is the um, administrative assistant of this um, of our host, who's who sent, been sent over from the investment office where this guy works, and, and, and she says, hey, hey, I'm so sorry to disturb you, but um, the, ho the owner um, has left some files behind that he really, really needs. Um, I just came by to pick them up. 
And, and imagine that we do not say, as you might imagine us saying, oh, sure, golly, come on in. Is there anything else he needs? This is amazing what he's done. Please tell him how grateful we are for what we've been given here. Imagine that we don't actually react that way. Imagine that we are actually indignant. We're actually, we say to her, you know, we were doing stuff here. Um, you know, this is our vacation, you know? And imagine we get kind of worked up and, and maybe one of the guys has had a, a, a couple of beers and he punches her in the face and she crawls away bloody. Imagine that. Then just suppose a little while later, um, somebody else from the office shows up and, uh, and similarly wants to know what's going on and, and asks if they, if they can have some assistance and this time we're so worked up we cut his throat. And then a third person comes out and, 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 and wants to interact with us and at this point we invite the individual in and then knock the person down and as they beg for mercy we pick up these big heavy ski boots and we just bludgeon that person to death. Imagine that. Does the contrast between the staggering grace that we had been shown and given in just being able to be in this place and the heinous wickedness of our response to that turn your stomach? How many of you would then say, pastors or not, those guys ought to be on the blacklist? Those guys ought to get justice for this terrible thing they've done. Well, that is probably and necessarily the truth. And if you can just take in that scenario, it will help you to appreciate the reality of what Jesus goes on to describe in his telling of the story of the tenants. When the harvest time approached, said Jesus, the landowner sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. And Mark's rendering of this story that Matthew's telling uh, has it saying to, he came to collect some of his fruit. But the tenants seized his servants, Jesus says. He, they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned to death, they bludgeoned to death a third. So the landowner sent in the Jerusalem SWAT team to kill those wicked fools. That's what I'm expecting next in the story, right? That is what you would hope would happen given the details of this particular story. The chief priests and the Pharisees listening to Jesus tell this story would have thought that would be something like that would be the appropriate thing. Because remember, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're the keepers of righteousness and the rules and, and, and the sense of justice. They would have expected the story to go on that way. But again, the story twists. But no. Then the landowner, says Jesus, sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them in the same way, the scripture says, verse 36. Last of all, 
He, meaning the devastated landowner, sent his son to them. Surely, surely, they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And a short while after this, they will take him, the son, outside the gates of the city and they will crucify him. It is really hard to imagine wickedness like that. I mean, when you really sit with it. It is hard to take in this kind of behavior. In fact, it, it, it just kicks up in me, for one, the sort of passions I feel when I'm watching one of those movies where that, you know, one of this, these awful criminals is, is ravaging the lives of innocent people, and I, I am just so ready for the hero to give that person the most painful death they can have, right? I want some kind of measure of justice in these kinds of circumstances. And that kind of righteous rage, I imagine I'm not just the only one who feels it in the face of circumstances like this. And so when Jesus asks, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? I think there's a lot of us that want to shout out as the whole audience that Jesus was talking to in the temple court that day shouted out, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and we will enjoy it when it happens. It's a very human emotion. Crush the snakes, turn the vineyard over to someone who understands how good they have it. Don't, don't. Let it be held by anybody who doesn't understand the importance of at least giving the owner the produce that it is only fair he's asked for. And the only problem I have with my response to this story, and the only problem that maybe you should have in this natural response to the story, is because that very response actually challenges something about you and about me. You see, Jesus was not um, spinning a fantasy story here. He wasn't making up something out out of his head. He was, as I've just suggested, predicting what was about to happen to him. But he was also looking back in history. Jesus was also telling the story of of Israel's life. You see, God had given the magnificent vineyard of Israel to the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes to manage. He had entrusted them with the care of the people and and of the land. 
Uh, he had endowed these particular people with unusual social advantages and intellectual capacity and influence of many different kinds, uh, remarkable uh, financial capacity as well to be stewards of, of his land and his affairs. But, but they had forgotten over time where their resources had come from. They had come to start to think of the castle, the vineyard, uh, all of it as really theirs uh, to do with as they chose. And, and they had cared more for their own comforts than they had for the children of God, for the vulnerable, for the needy people uh, around them. And they just denied responsibility for those other people. They actually covered up their own spiritual hollowness with all kinds of superficial religious acts and rituals and fine clothes. But Jesus said, you're no more than whitewashed sepulchers. You may look great on the outside. People may actually admire your brightness, but I know what's inside of you. I know it's rotting. I know it's dead and dying. You have died to the heart of God. And your actions in these circumstances just demonstrate that. And so God sends to the people of Israel, uh, long before Jesus comes, waves, actually two successive waves of prophets to challenge the people of Israel, to think about these things, to, to, to reconsider how they're using their resources, how they're treating the vulnerable of their society. He, the prophets are, are really articulate in, in giving the message of of the landowner in a sense. And what do the people of Israel do with the prophets? They stone them, they kill them, they beat them. They do all the same things that Jesus was describing in the parable. And they just do these awful things without even imagining what this must look like to the one who gave it all. Now some of you are thinking at this point, okay, Interesting story, but what does that actually have to do with me? I mean, I haven't killed any prophets lately. Well, at the risk of being the first, recent one, <laughs> let me tell you what I think the application is for, for not just you, but for me too. Um, who... Who in this world today do you think has been most endowed with gracious capacity? Let me boil it down, make it simpler even than that. Who in this county has been given more religious knowledge, greater intellectual capacity, more uh, social advantage, than the people who fill this church or churches like our church around the county. Of all the people in the Chicago area, who is in a better position to do things that will reflect the will of God and bring flourishing and, and hope and help to other people than us? Is there a group out there we should be pointing to that like is in a better position to do this? And I want to suggest that like the leaders of Israel before us, there are probably at least two major ways we can respond to that knowledge. Um, one way is to admit that we've heard the word of God today. Uh, that's one response. 
Uh, one way is to decide that we're gonna become the kind of tenant that the grace, that the kind of grace we've received commends as a response. That's what the Lenten season is, by the way. It's a season when we look really hard at ourselves. We ask ourselves, where have we gotten out of alignment with God and his heart and his calling in our lives? It's a time for us to, to, to confess where that has happened and to seek to get on the path again. It's what is called repentance, turning away and turning toward the way of, of God. That is, that's one of the responses we can make. And, and it's not too late to do that. It, it, it is entirely within our capacity to do this because if we really decided to give the owner the kind of fruit that he deserves, there would be a bunch of ways of doing that. I, I wanna just suggest a couple. It's not an exhaustive list, but it'll prime the pump of our thinking. With the kind of talent and connections that we have here and the network of relationships we have in other places, we could eliminate poverty in DuPage County. We could. We could rally as a church, we could help to rally other churches to come around families and individuals who are under-resourced and mentor them and support them and help lift them. We could take every single kid in the Roosevelt Road corridor that we have invested in recently and we could go the next mile with them and make sure they all go to college, that they're all given the tutoring and the helping, the help they need to, to thrive and flourish. We could do that. We, it's within our power with the resources we've been given. If even half of us made up our minds today that going forward, that we're going to move toward um, committing even 5%, one twentieth of our annual income towards the work of the local church um, instead of the 1% to 2% that is sort of the norm in America, we could double the ability of the ch local church to do its ministries and extend its influence out across the world. We could do that. If some of us didn't only smile at the beautiful babies that we baptize here and, and, and nod uh, for, formulaically when we answer the question about uh, pledging to support uh, raising these kids and we actually volunteered once a month in the children's ministry or stepped forward to be a youth leader or um, said, you know what, I'm starting now to start a, a family devotion pattern in my home. If we did this, and if lots of us did this, there would be hundreds of kids who over the course of time wouldn't just go off to college and lose their faith, but would have that faith so deeply implanted that they walked through the rest of their life with a moral vision that made them salt and light in every corporation, every family, every community they entered. And if every church did this, it would change America and it would change the world. And it could start with us by simply being better stewards, better tenants right where we are. We could start small group Bible studies in our communities. We could create circles of support for people that want to know more of God. We could reach out and invite uh, friends and neighbors to come to our Downers Grove branch or our Oak Brook branch of our church or encourage them 
to go to other churches where they would find the support and the inspiration they needed and that would alter their lives and then they would alter other people's lives. In short, we can be, we can be the fully devoted stewards, the fully devoted tenants that the great landowner has always hoped that we would be. So how about you? What kind of a steward are you? What kind of a steward am I? I'm asking myself that too in this season with you. How do we respond? You know, I said there were two responses that we could make to this whole challenge of Jesus. One response is to repent and turn. The other response that we could make is the response that the chief priests and the Pharisees actually made. The Bible says that it is actually from this particular moment on, it is from the telling of this story forward that they say, okay, jigs up, we're getting rid of him. And so we too can try to destroy the one who calls us to be what we can be. Now we're not gonna literally kill Jesus anymore. We, we don't have access to his body to do that. But there are lots of other ways to mute his witness to us if we try. Some of us have already, are already doing it. You're, you're, listening, you're thinking to yourself, that preacher, he's, now he's meddling. Now he's getting obnoxious and judgmental and critical. That's why I don't go to church. Uh, or, or you'll talk in the car on the way home. I don't think I interpret that passage that way. I think he was talking just about those people. I'm sure this didn't have anything to do with me. We can mute that witness. How do I know we can do it? Because I do it myself. I'm always trying to skate out and skirt the word of God and his challenge to me. I understand that impulse. We can pretend that, that this isn't relevant. We can choose a different church. We can choose no church. In fact, avoid altogether ever hearing anybody push us and challenge us in this kind of way. We can actually kill the spirit of Christ that is trying to reach out to us actually in love now as Jesus was reaching for those Pharisees and scribes and chief priests trying to redeem us from being on the blacklist. We can choose that way if we do. But you know, as a fellow resident of this amazing club that we have, and, and as one chief priest speaking to the, to the group of Pharisees and scribes whom I love so much and believe so much in, I pray that when we meet the owner's son gazing across the threshold with eyes of love at us, that we will respond in the best possible way. That, that, that we will not do again what we may have already done in our hearts far too often. Instead, I pray that we will ask him to forgive us for where maybe we've not been such good stewards and tenants. Uh, because he will forgive us for that if we, if we authentically turn to him. I pray that we'll ask him to, to come into our hearts and to guide us as we seek to do these things differently going forward. And I know he will honor that invitation and come in. And, and I hope that we will offer to him the first fruits of our lives, not just the scraps and the leftovers. Uh, I hope we'll prioritize this as much or more than anything else we prioritize in our life. 
And, and I ultimately believe that the harvest that he will bring, uh, that he will bring forth in us and then through us as we do these things will be far greater than what we could ever grow for ourselves. For this, dear friends, is not just me making stuff up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. Please pray with me. Holy and generous God, when we think and see clearly, we know that each and all of us are recipients of advantages, of blessings, of comforts and capacities that place us in the highest percentiles of anybody that's ever lived on this planet. How bounteous is this vineyard we inhabit, how amazing are the ways you have equipped us to thrive and bear fruit within it. So help us, Lord, to look deeply into our lives, into our hearts, and most of all, into your face today. Move within us to make us more like you and receive from our grateful hands the share of the harvest, the acts of generous service to which you have called us as your tenants. For it is in Christ's name that we pray together saying, Amen.